musicians. Find Philippians 2, if you would please. Philippians chapter 2. So good to see everybody today. And I am looking very much forward to October when all of our community groups are meeting back in person uh, in the buildings. I know so many of you are Zoomed out. You're tired of everything being on Zoom. I hear you. So uh, we're looking forward to being back, everybody live in person with their groups uh, meeting. So pray about that and spread word in your community group, October uh, the 4th. Uh, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, please? We're going to look this morning at the, at the subject matter, the need for a Copernican revolution. And that'll become clear in just a few moments. Okay? Paul says there in Philippians 1, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, what's your confession? Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Would you be seated, please? The Copernicum Revolution was a major paradigm shift. Previously, the Ptolemaic model of the heavens described the earth as being still, the earth stationary. And the thought was the earth was the center of the universe with the sun and the other planets revolving around the earth. Well, Nicholas Copernicus, born in 1473, challenged that even in his day before the telescope. He had a different theory. The heliocentric model with the sun at the center of our solar system and earth and the other planets revolving around the sun. Well, approximately 100 years later, 80 to 100 years later, Galileo took out his telescope and 
and he affirmed what Copernicus had stated. What happened to Galileo? Well, he was put on trial. He was found guilty as a heretic and was put under house arrest for the rest of his life. Simply for affirming what we know to be true today. The sun is at the center of our solar system and the planets revolve around the sun. No one today would question Copernicus or Galileo. But it didn't set well with the folks of their day. It didn't even set well with the Roman Catholic Church itself. Folks, sad to say experiences like that have been all too common in our world today and all too common in history, sometimes even in church history. Far too many professing believers live as though they are convinced everything revolves around them. Have you noticed? Self. Self. Do you realize that every single day on Android devices alone, not even counting Apple devices, Android devices alone, 93 million selfies are taken on a daily basis. 93 million. It said the average person now born since 1980 will take 25,000 selfies in their lifetime. You know what a selfie is, right? Somebody takes out their phone, pauses. They sort of pause standing where they are and they pose and oftentimes they pose with puckered lips, whatever that's supposed to mean or hands on hips, and, and they take a snapshot of themselves. You can even buy an extension pole now to put your phone on so you can get better selfies. More die every year from selfies than from shark attacks. Seriously, selfies gone wrong. Everybody wants that perfect picture they can put on Instagram. It's not unusual to read of somebody standing on the edge of a cliff or some dangerous spot to get a selfie. They lose their footing and they fall to their death. One of the trends nowadays, wedding trends, is to get the engaged couple somewhere like that. I saw a picture just this past week. A couple, an engaged couple, was at the edge of a, a steep cliff. And the wife-to-be wife is leaned back over with one foot up in the air and her fiancé just barely holding on to her as she's leaning out over nothing. Of course, the story went on to say what you didn't see is they had rigged up a climbing harness under her dress. They had photoshopped that out so she wasn't really in the danger that you thought she was in. Now the next couple will come along and try to outdo that, right? We're a selfie generation now. Now as we look at the Philippian congregation, let's think about that and these words that Paul says here. Apparently they stood firm in doctrine. Chapter 1 gives no indication of doctrinal issues. In chapter 4 we're going to read about two ladies that weren't getting along. 
and drawing others into their battles. Paul's going to address that one more later, but in this passage, by both principle and illustration, he tells us what? He tells us that we are to put others first. Instead of self, we're to think of others. I know it's a worn-out cliche by now, but you know how, how joy has been defined, right? Jesus, others, and self. If you want joy, you're not first. Amen? We need to put Jesus first and others. Let's see what Paul has to say about that this morning. If you're taking notes with me, I want you to see first of all that true biblical joy comes from seeing believers unified around the gospel. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and being of one mind. You know, one of the highlights of the early church was their love that they had for one another. Jesus had told his disciples in John 13, Hereby the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We see that being demonstrated in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. Uh, the church body being together and putting one another first. Putting Jesus first and then putting one another first. You know, the Bible tells us that once coming to Christ, we're to, we're to follow Him through believer's baptism. We're to unite with the local fellowship. We're to participate in that local fellowship. And we're to think of others. As we worship the Lord, we're to think of one another, how we can put one another first, how we can pray for one another and come to church and encourage one another and even through the week, how we can encourage one another. That's what church life is supposed to be about. But how in the world can that happen? How can we relate to one another and fellowship with one another and be on the same page? Well, look at what Paul says here about that. Let's take these phrases just one at a time. He says, we're to be of the same mind. Be of the same mind. He says there in verse 2. We're going to come back to verse 1 in a moment because verse 1 is the motivation for carrying this out. But the instruction begins in verse 2 and he says, Be of the same mind. In other words, we need common convictions. I suppose that, that is, that's, that's the first hallmark of a biblical fellowship. We're, uh, we're united around the same beliefs, the same convictions. As I've told you before, we're not a Muslim group. We're not a Hindu group. We're not a Jewish group. We are a Christian group. And there are convictions, common convictions that Christians have. We have common convictions centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. I was disappointed by a recent survey out this year 
between Lifeway and Ligonier Ministries. One of you just this past week sent me the results of that survey. You may have seen it. Americans, even American churchgoers who say they are evangelicals are seriously confused about the person and work of Jesus Christ. It seems in the church. The majority of folks, if this survey can be trusted, we don't really understand that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. The majority say that he's just a prophet or a good teacher. Folks, the Bible points out he's the Son of God and he has existed from all eternity. There's never been a time that he was not. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Folks, it's important to get Jesus right. Salvation depends on understanding the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's not a secondary issue. That's essential. Now, what is it that supports our common convictions? Where do we get our common convictions from? From the Word of God. The inspired inerrant word of God we have to start there believing that we have a trustworthy inerrant account that God has given us in his word otherwise we would be left to our own opinions without any sort of solid foundation folks we will never be alike in our opinions and our preferences Opinions and preferences can never provide the rallying point for a body of believers. The Word of God gives us our rallying point. You know, I've told you in the past, there all through the ages, until in recent decades and centuries, there's been some common core convictions, some essential things that believers have held to, like the sovereignty of God, the inspiration and authority of Scripture, the eternal lostness of man apart from Christ, salvation through Christ alone, the necessity of repentance and faith for the new birth, the virgin birth of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the second coming of Christ, and the essentiality of missions. Those have been common core convictions. Now believers disagree about other things. We don't all agree about the proper mode of baptism, for instance. You go to different churches, different denominations, and there are some differences in conviction about that issue. Celebrating the Lord's Supper, likewise, there's some differences. Different Christian groups believe uh, about the Lord's Supper. We may differ on our list of spiritual gifts. We may differ of how we interpret end-time events. But folks, we should not differ on those ten core essentials that I just mentioned to you. 
there were some things that Paul wanted the members of the Philippian church thinking alike on. He wanted their minds to be like two clocks that strike at the same time. Be of the same mind. He goes on this next phrase to talk about being of the same love. Having the same love. Here's another rallying point for Christians. We have a common love. What is that common love? It's love for Christ. We don't just embrace a system, a religious system. We embrace a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we love Him. And we love our brothers and sisters who have been born of Him. We love the brethren. And we love the things of God. We love what God loves, hate, hate what God hates. Do you love Christ? Or do you just love the system? Do you love religion? Do you love the brethren? Do you love what God loves? We are to have the same love. Be of the same mind, be of the same love. Then he goes on thirdly to say here, be of the same spirit and purpose. We should literally be, he says, spirit with spirit around a single purpose. The last thing Jesus did for his disciples was give them that purpose. It's called the Great Commission. That we're to go into all the world making disciples, baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded, Jesus said. And lo, I'll be with you always, he promised. That's the last command that he gave the church. We're to, we're to be of that same purpose. Now, notice that we not only have these instructions or admonitions here, but, but Paul gives the motivations behind acting like this. Having one mind, one love, one purpose. He talks about that in verse 1. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... You see, those are the motivations. Let's take those one at a time. If there's any encouragement in Christ. Now, in the Greek construction, the little word if takes on the meaning of since. He's not saying if this has happened to you, but rather since it has. Since you have had encouragement in Christ. And the word that he uses there is the same as that which describes the Holy Spirit coming alongside of each of us to help us. He comes alongside of us and encourages us. Have you experienced that? Sure you have. I think we would all admit that we found great support and help and encouragement from the Lord in our lives when we needed it the most. Perhaps as you were going through a trial in your life, the Lord laid on somebody's heart in the church to come around and see you and minister to you, and you were encouraged by that. And so as those who have experienced that, as those who have been encouraged, Paul says, we need to reach out with that same kind of encouragement. 
That's really the whole point behind 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul says, We serve a God who's the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions. Why? So we can just enjoy all of His comfort for ourselves? No. Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 1, So we can see somebody else going through that same trial where the Lord has been a comfort to us, and we can reach out to that person with the same encouragement, and we can help them with what God has done for us. The next motivation Paul gives for living in unity is any, have you experienced any comfort from love? Has it ever done you any good in the midst of the valley to understand that God loves you? You may not like what God has you going through at a particular time, but as His child, you know that anything you face has first of all been sifted through his loving fingers. You believe Romans 8.28 that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. Those are, who are the called according to his purpose. You've experienced God's love through even the valleys of life. And you've experienced God's love when you didn't deserve it. In fact, we don't ever deserve it. And so we are, we are to comfort with love others when they have needs. Then Paul mentions any participation in the Spirit. You and I enjoy the presence, the participation of the Holy Spirit. He's with us. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. He endures with us. His participation with us, His presence with us is always there. That's the kind of endurance we need with one another. Instead of a bookkeeper's mentality that says, if you ever do that again, I'll never speak to you, we need to remember that we have the constant participation of the Spirit with us. What if he said, if you ever commit that sin again, I'll never fellowship with you again. But he doesn't do that. We have his constant participation, his endurance with us. And so that's what we extend to others. Finally, by way of motivation there in verse 1, Paul mentions any affection and sympathy. That's an expression that goes well with love. Not only does God love us, but he has an affection for us and he has a sympathy uh, for us. In other words, God's love is not something disconnected. It's not remote, it's not cold, it's up close, it's personal. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. And so our love for the brethren is to be up close and personal, not disconnected and distant. Again, everything in verse 1 is the motivation behind why he's saying what he says there in verse 2. Verse 2 is the instruction, that's the command. Verse 1 tells us why we're to do that. Second thing he points out, true biblical joy comes from seeing maturity in believers. Look at verse 3 and 4. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. He's telling them to lay down a, a spirit of rivalry and competition and conceit. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. Do nothing out of selfishness. The word for conceit is vainglory, having too high of an opinion of ourselves. Far too many people have too high of an opinion of themselves. And Paul points out how that can destroy a fellowship. You take a class in the church that thinks their class deserves the best. And they're impossible to deal with. Maybe you need a room switch because of class size. Each room is as good as the other, other than the size of the class. But the smaller class and the bigger room, they like their room best. Even though their room would suit the other class better, the, class, the room they're moving into would be just fine, they refuse to do it. And so in the process, they end up causing hard feelings in the church. Why? Because they're looking after themselves. They were only thinking of me, myself, and mine. But Paul tells the Philippians here they're to look after one another. But he doesn't stop there. Not just look after one another, but what does he say? Even put others ahead of yourself. Boy, now that's revolutionary, isn't it? One tragic thing in the world we see today is that everybody demands their needs to be met. It used to be more subtle. It's not even subtle anymore. Everybody thinks others are supposed to meet their needs. And one of the revolutionary things about the Christian faith is that we are to meet others' needs. You take a marriage, for example. The husband's to meet the needs of the wife. The wife meet the needs of the husband. Guess what happens? Two things. First of all, everybody's needs are met. But secondly, you love the other person more because you see how they are putting you first. And that makes you want to put them first all the more. But if on the other hand, you, you see somebody just selfishly wanting what they want, what does that breed? That breeds bitterness and resentment. When we're meeting one another's needs, focusing on one another instead of ourselves, needs are met and we're creating a deeper bond between us because we're helping them and they're helping us. I use the example of marriage, but I could use the example of a church body all the same. Folks, obviously pastors hang out with other pastors just simply because we go to a lot of meetings together. Meetings and more meetings. And I can tell you one of the common issues pastors face today, and one thing that they talk about, I don't care what size their church is, I don't care where it's located, 
pastors are seeing a real change today when it comes to relationships in the church. Everybody is thinking more today about what's in it for me. Pastors will say, you know, I've always had to deal with that, but I've never had to deal with it anywhere close to what I'm seeing today. It's off the charts today. You probably see it yourself at work a lot. But what Paul is saying here about putting other, looking after others' needs and putting others first, that takes a lot of Christian maturity, doesn't it? You take a group of little toddlers and you try to take a toy away from one. Or let another toddler try to take a toy away from a toddler. They'll grab it back. Mine! Mine! And as a child grows and matures, what do we do? We teach them to share. Look after your friends. That's a mark of maturity. In a church body, when we see our brothers and sisters in need, we're to busy ourselves with meeting their needs. When we see ministries in need, we are to busy ourselves with meeting needs. If the youth are working on a mission project and we can help them, or they need resources, money to do what they want to do, we need to help them. We, that's a sign of maturity. We're working together as a common purpose. We ourselves may not be in the youth group, but the youth group is a part of our body, our family of believers here. And so we help them. In the children's ministry, we do the same. If the seniors have a need, we do the same. We look after one another. That's a sign of a happy and a healthy church, but it's also the sign of a holy church. A holy church. And if we're holy, we'll be healthy and happy. This consumer mentality that is so common today is destructive to the church body. Third thing I want you to see, true biblical joy comes from seeing people imitate Jesus. Look at what Paul says about all this, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Some of the greatest teaching on Jesus Christ coming in the flesh comes out of these verses right here. It's believed that maybe these verses right here were some part of an early Christian hymn. Whether that's the case or not, I want you to see what Paul is doing here. Paul is using verses 5 through 11 as an illustration of what he's just said in the first four verses. If you teach a Sunday school class or you're a pastor, you're always looking for just the right illustration. The great preacher, Dr. Stephen Olford, who went on to teach other preachers, his class asked him one time, Dr. Olford, what points in our messages should we illustrate? 
He said, only the points that you want your people to remember. We love a good illustration. And that's what Paul is doing here. And he's given the best illustration of all because it's the illustration of Jesus Christ. He's just told them to look after others' needs, put others first. He goes on to illustrate how Jesus has done that. He left the ivory palaces of heaven to come to a dark world, to go to a cross and die for his own sins? No, because he had no sins of his own to die for. He went to the cross for you and for me. He was putting us first. Think about those passages in the Old Testament that it's commonly believed they refer to Satan. There's some difference of opinion about that. Some believe those passages might be talking about Adam in the garden. There's a divide, even among evangelical scholars. The passages I'm speaking of, passages like Isaiah 14, especially Ezekiel 28, where the person being spoke of says, I will exalt myself, I'll do my own thing, I'll go my own way, I'll exalt myself above the heavens, I'll be like God. Those passages for many have come to describe Satan. Talk about selfies. Satan was full of pride. Selfies are all that mattered to him. He selfishly grabbed a hold of what was not his to begin with. And the outcome of that was that he was cast down. His self-exaltation led to shame and humiliation. There's no greater contrast with Satan than that of Jesus. Jesus was the very Son of God. God the Son and the Son of God. He was very God of very God and yet He empties Himself. He humbles Himself. He gives up what was rightfully His. He had been above all creatures, human and angelic. But He laid aside His robes. He laid aside His heavenly glory that was His from all eternity. In laying aside his heavenly glory, he didn't lay aside his divine attributes because that's who he was and he is. He's God and nothing can change that. But he laid aside his heavenly glory, made himself of no reputation, and he came to earth as a servant. He stooped to our level, becoming like us in our humanity, yet without sin. He loved us enough he gave up his right. He gave up what he deserved and he took my sin and your sin and he died on the cross. And not only did he die, but he died a criminal's death. He deserved worship and praise, but but he received hatred and mockery and death. Why did he put himself through all of that? Because of us. Because of you and me. And that's why Paul is saying what he's saying here in verse 5. Have this mind in yourselves that is yours in Christ Jesus. Be like Christ. Paul's saying, you think unity is hard? 
You think being unselfish is hard? You think putting others first is hard? Let me show you someone far better than you who modeled this perfectly. His name's Jesus. And the beautiful thing is, Jesus humbled himself, but what do these verses go on to say? God exalted him. God exalted him and gave him a name that is above all names. It's like Paul is saying, you want to see wonderful things take place in your life, in your church, in your family, whatever circles you want to run in or you do run in, you want to see wonderful things take place? You humble yourself. Put others ahead of you. Put others first. Meet their needs. And you're going to see God do some wonderful and awesome things. I've told you before about Dr. Oscar Thompson. He was a, a professor at Southwestern Seminary in evangelism. He wrote a book entitled Concentric Circles of Concern. Tremendous book about essentially, you know, who's your one? Who's your one in each circle that you're going to impact for the sake of the gospel? In your closest circle of intimate friends and family and acquaintances and who are you going to reach? But anyway, in that book, he tells the story of one of his students who rode a motorcycle. And this student drove that motorcycle into the parking lot at, at his work one day and he noticed a bike just like his but without a special kind of mirror on it. Later that night, he left work, noticed the mirror on his bike was gone. He went over to the other bike and said, there it is, that joker stole mine. He knew it was his because of a special mark it had on it. He took the mirror off of that guy's bike, put it back on his bike where it belonged, and he did damage to this other guy's bike. He got home and God convicted him about it. He said, Dr. Thompson, I'm, I'm miserable. What do I need to do? Dr. Thompson said, well, you know what you need to do, and I'm, the Holy Spirit's already telling you what you need to do. He said, I knew you were going to say something like that. Well... One of the classes a few days later, he said, I've just, I've got to tell you in the class what happened. I went out and bought a brand new mirror that this guy stole off of my bike. I put it on his bike. And I fixed the damage that I had done to his bike. And I left him a note. Well, the guy called me and said, I've stolen many things in life. Never has anybody responded by buying me what I needed and performing a kind deed. You fixed my bike. You damaged it, but you fixed it at your expense. I want to meet you. 
this student was able to meet that guy and lead him to faith in Christ. That's the sort of thing that God can do in relationships when we humble ourselves and put others first and look after their needs. Would you bow with me, please? This morning, do you need a Copernicum revolution? Do you think everything is supposed to revolve around you? If that's what you think, I guarantee you, you've jeopardized many of your relationships. Ask God today to give you the attitude of Jesus. Every day as part of your devotion this week, ask God to change your thinking and to give you the mind of Christ. Would you do that? Lord, give me the mind of Christ. Verse 5, Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. God, help me to have the mind of Christ in humbling myself and put others first and looking after their needs. Could self and selfishness in your life also indicate maybe a deeper problem? Could it actually be indicating that you are yet to have the life of Christ in you? If nothing has changed in your life, then you're selfish and demanding that you be first and everything revolve around you. Could that be an indication that regeneration has never occurred? Maybe I'm talking to somebody this morning who needs a relationship with Christ. That's, that's the first thing. that's you I want to ask you to come forward at the end of the service or to reach out to a pastoral staff member on our email we'd love to meet with you and share the gospel with you and pray with you and then lastly I just want you to think about what could happen in your marriage in your home life at work at school maybe with one of your neighbors that you've had some friction with, what could happen if you actually humbled yourself and put that other person first and displayed the mind of Christ with that person? Who knows? They may be like that motorcycle guy that contacted the Christian and said, Can I talk to you? I've never had anybody do something kind for me like this. Lord, we know that as part of fallen human nature, we want what we want and we want it now. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden with the fruit that God had said, don't take, don't eat. Yet it looked good. It looked desirable. 
Lord, we're like that in our fallen humanity. But Lord, we're so grateful for the story of redemption in Scripture that you sent your Son who humbled himself and died for us on the cross. And through faith in him, you regenerate our lives. You change us from the inside out so that we can be more like him. I do pray for that one this morning who needs that regeneration. Lord, I pray for the Christian who's fallen back into some of those pre-Christian habits. Lord, again, I pray that you give us the mind of Christ. And Lord, in so doing, we'll, just, we'll be able to stand back and just see the awesome things you can do. Lord, I, I think of a marriage here this morning that might be suffering. And if a husband leaves here this morning, he has the mind of Christ and doesn't, doesn't say anything to make a big deal out of it, but just starts practicing the mind of Christ. What could happen in that marriage? I think of the businessman or businesswoman here that may be at odds with somebody at work. If they have the mind of Christ, what might you do in that relationship at work? It may be far more than we could ever even expect. Again, we may end up leading that person to faith in Christ. Give us your mind. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please?